0: Welcome to Inside Reagan, the Reagan Institute's official podcast. I'm Liam Fitzgerald. I'm joined today by Dr. Alex Shalek, who, among many other things, is a professor of health sciences and technology at MIT, a core member at the Institute for Medical Engineering at MIT, and an associate member here at the Reagan Institute. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shalek. Thanks for having me. And now, one thing that sets you apart from others at the Reagan Institute is that you have a background in hard sciences. Your degrees are in chemical physics, and you're a professor at MIT. So how did you get involved in working at the Reagan Institute?
1: So it's actually strange, um, because I never thought that I was going to be affiliated with the Reagan or that I'd be doing HIV research, but um, it's a funny story of how science sort of twists and takes you in weird places when you follow your data. So I actually originally went to grad school to do statistical mechanics, ended up working for a guy who wanted to look at the brain kind of like a static problem. Wanted to look at a bunch of neurons, look at their interactions, examine how they gave rise to emergent properties like memory, learning, and logic. And to do this, we realized that we'd have to develop some new technologies that would let us record from every single neuron. it turned out that one of the technologies that we developed, sort of an array of vertical silicon nanowires, had unintended uses that we hadn't originally expected. So it turns out that these really sharp little needles that we developed weren't only good as voltage probes, but they could also be used as you know, small needles to deliver things into cells. Uh, immune cells are traditionally hard to perturb, and it turned out that these little needles were a very good way of delivering perturbations like sRNA or proteins or whatever your favorite thing is into immune cells which led to some studies that I did in uh, looking at TLR signaling in dendritic cells and viability in um, chronic lymphocytic leukemia and you know the pathways that control the differentiation of T cells. And so in doing all this, I spent a lot of time using what people would think of as sort of systems biology approaches where I would go in and I'd measure lots of different things. I'd look at patterns, and I'd assume that those correlations were causative, and then I'd go back and I'd systematically test them using perturbations. The problem was, every time I went to test things, I saw that there was a lot of cellular heterogeneity, and this is something that really bugged me coming from physics, because if I was making a model of my cells, I would want all of my cells to respond equivalently to a single input, and I was seeing that they weren't. So this got me interested in whether or not I could go in and study single cells and look for differences among them. And see if there was anything that was interesting there in the same way that you and i are sort of the same but different and if i could only understand the differences between us i might understand why you're different and you know what makes me think the way that i do particularly as i started to look across more and more people or in this case more and more cells so to do this um, we adapted an emerging technique called single cell rna sequencing and basically we were able to show that in patterns in variation across cells there was actually information You know, it turned out that this was great, but in order to really use the technique appropriately, we had to be able to sequence more cells. So I had to go back with a number of people around town and across the country and develop some new technologies to help us scale up. And, you know, these were things that we did with lots of parties. But as we did this, we started applying it to multiple different systems, you know, and we'd look at things like how cells evolved over time. And we discovered that a lot of the things that we thought individual cells were doing actually really depended upon their interactions with other cells. And so this got me super interested in how composition and communication drives sort of systems-level dynamics. You can sort of think about it if you think about cells as people. How does, you know, the people that are involved in a particular situation, the way in which they communicate, change the overall outcome and other things that change in health and disease that are interesting? And so I got really excited about this and was lucky enough to have the opportunity to set up a lab at MIT that sort of focuses on developing technologies to study these sorts of questions. Um, and a natural place to take this is to start interacting with places like the Reagan, where you really have interesting biological specimens, but also places where you know, changes in the abundance of cell types or in their experience due to interactions with virus actually lead to outcomes that are you know, often bad, but sometimes good, like in the case of elite control.
0: And so now I'd like to backtrack a little bit. You mentioned single-cell RNA sequencing. So can you elaborate on that a little bit and just tell me how that works and what you can learn using that technology?
1: Sure. So I think that that I'm one of the people that really drinks the Kool-Aid, so you'll have to take this with a grain of salt. So the real idea behind single-cell RNA sequencing is that, you know, There's that we assume that we understand what are important in cells. So for many years, we've looked at the levels of our favorite markers on the surface of cells. We tried to classify them, understand why cells would do one thing or another. Um, But not really knowing what's important in any given system led me to want to understand these things from sort of a global perspective. So what we do in RNA sequencing that sort of enables this is we actually go in, we take individual cells, we rip them apart. We grab all of their messenger RNA based upon this polyadenylated tail that they have, and we generate a sequencing library out of it. And what we're doing is we're just looking at everything that a cell is expressing, everything that it thinks it needs to do at a given moment. And by looking at patterns across cells and sort of saying, well, these cells think they need to do this and these cells think they need to do that, or when a cell thinks it needs to do this, it also thinks it needs to do this, we can begin to identify not only what the basic thought patterns are, or in this case, cell types or cell states, but also the pathways that are involved in making those decisions. And so what this does is it gives us an opportunity to look genome-wide at the things that define cells without having to make any assumptions ahead of time. And it doesn't mean that it's a perfect replacement for everything, but it gives us sort of a global, relatively unbiased way of taking a first-pass examination of all of these things.
0: What implications does that have on immunological research, especially, you know, the Reagan Institute, is the whole idea is to find a cure to HIV and AIDS. So what? how can you use that technology to help find a cure?
1: So I, I think... A, A cure is a dangerous thing um, to to put out there. I don't want to say that what we're doing is necessarily going to lead to a cure. I hope that it helps in some way or another. I think it would be wonderful um, if there was one. I'd say that I think that the kind of stuff we're doing could be incredibly useful in potentially creating a cure. And by that, I mean, I don't want to say cure. Let's say protection against it. So let's say developing a vaccine. Or developing a therapy that improves the lives of people. So the way, that, the way that I think about this is that if I wanted to think about how to, how to do a therapy, I'd want to understand what are the cells that are, infected, are affected by HIV. So if I was to say, well, you know, HIV comes in and it depletes cells of the immune system, I'd want to understand what cells disappear. And if I was to put somebody on antiretroviral therapy, you know, art therapy that's going to reconstitute the immune system, I'd want to know if the cells that came back look like the cells that normal people would have. And if they don't, what are the deviations? Because that's what I'd want to do with a drug. I'd want to reconstitute the immune system properly, right? In the context of a vaccine, so shifting from therapeutics to prophylactics, you know, I would say, I think it's interesting to understand the actual targets of HIV. So being able to go into these precious samples that people have had trouble working with before, because they're so precious and so small, like set of brushes and looking at the first targets of HIV infections so that you could think about how you might prevent those cells from becoming infected or how you might prevent these acute targets from transitioning to a systemic infection. As there may be ways of, you know, blocking things at the front. This could be a vaccine. It could be a gel. Who knows? Um, but sort of understanding the mechanisms that HIV uses and its ultimate impact on uh, human health, I think, is incredibly important as a way of thinking about next steps. And I think that there are also some opportunities in you know, using some of the unique things that we observe across different patient cohorts um, by applying some of our techniques. So, for example, you know, there's an interesting subset of uh, people called leak controllers that can naturally control HIV with their own immune systems. About one in 200. And because we know that genetics doesn't do all of this, you might imagine that in some people they have differences in the composition in their immune system. That leads to a better defense against virus. So I think one place where we might be able to contribute is sort of in going in and trying to understand what is different about these people that are good at uh, suppressing virus without antiretrovirals. And, you know, what could we learn from that as a way of helping to design therapeutics that take advantage of those um, opportunities.
0: As you mentioned at the beginning, your background is in hard science. You've done a lot of work in developing these nanoscale technologies. And so has your research in partnership with the Reagan Institute influenced how you go about developing these technologies since you started working there?
1: I mean, it definitely has. I think one of the things that I've come to appreciate is that you want to develop technologies that are useful and that address questions. So You know, as we've gone through, it's been this iterative cycle of we develop the technology, we apply it, we understand the limitations that are introduced by the biology, and then we go back and develop new things. So I told you about a nanowire technique I developed with a couple other people in Hawking Park's group over at Harvard. We applied that. We realized that cellular heterogeneity was a problem. So we went back and we started trying to develop things in single cell sequencing. We found it was a cool technique, but we found that we needed to look at lots of cells. We went back and we started partnering with people to scale up. One of the things that's become incredibly um, obvious to me in working with people, not only on the HIV side of the Reagan, but also on the tuberculosis side, is that very often we have these complex and precious samples that are small and are usually hard to work with. So a lot of what we've done over the last little bit has been taking some of the technologies that work you know, in cell lines and places where we have lots of material and things are easy, and I've started to port them to make them easier so that they can be applied in different clinical contexts you know, a chip where we can do easy, massively parallel sequencing that can be brought into the BL3 at the Reagan, or one that can be shipped over to Africa and run with our collaborators over at KRith. So thinking about, you know, sort of the clinical realities that exist in these different situations has influenced sort of the iterations and the designs of what we've done to try and simplify them, make them more sample efficient, and make them, um, you know, a little bit more rapid for processing uh, some of these precious things.
0: It's a bit unusual to have two labs in two pretty different research institutions so why is that something that you've pursued something that's important to you?
1: So I think one of the reasons that I got attracted to the Reagan is that there's so many people that um, are just phenomenal and that are experts in the field and you know I really fundamentally am um, come from the hard sciences. I'm a chemist. I have some physics training. I really am an engineer. I build things and, you know, I can apply those technologies, but I don't know where to apply them, how to apply them, how to understand what the realities are. And when I get information back, I don't necessarily understand how to interpret it. So it's incredibly important to me to have a strong community of people that we're constantly interacting with so that we're developing things that are useful. And so that we have people that can give us insight into what our data actually means. And also for my students, It's important that they have the opportunity to interact with people on a daily basis. What it does is it makes my lab, even though we have a tight-knit little community, feel bigger because we get to go out, we get to interact with people, they get trained by these individuals in the labs of everybody over there, and it really has done a tremendous amount for increasing the amount we know and the amount we can do. Um, So to me, it's been essential. I don't think that we would ever make any progress here, that we would have done anything that we've done so far without guidance and feedback from a lot of the people over at the Reagan.
0: So now, where do you see your research going forward? Are you excited about anything? Do you see any challenges ahead, Um, any preliminary data? Where do you see this going?
1: So, I mean, we have lots of interesting preliminary results. I think that what I'm most excited about in the context of the Reagan is sort of the overall motto and mission, this idea that you're trying to... You know, Engineer the immune system uh, to improve human health. And I think that, you know, from what we found in a lot of our preliminary data is that you have lots of interesting cellular responses that you get in different conditions and that different people have different responses and they correlate with different outcomes. And so, if we can understand better what are the outcomes that we would want in the context of a vaccine or in the context of, you know, of a therapy as a way of responding to. HIV or tuberculosis, we can start to think about how we might use interventions, be they drugs, be they other biologics, to modulate um, overall immune uh, profiles. So I'm sort of excited about this idea of understanding the fundamental components of response, how those components are put together to generate something at a systems level, and how you might start to tweak things to uh, achieve better strategies for both um, protection, and defense, and ultimate in therapy.
0: Dr. Alex Shalek is a professor of health sciences and technology at MIT, a core member at the Institute for Medical Engineering at MIT and an associate member here at the Reagan Institute. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Shalek.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: If you want to learn more about Dr. Shalek and his research, visit his website, shaleklab.com.